I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, let me ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the word utopia? Well, my first reaction is unrealistic. Second is that it is the opposite of dystopia. And as a traditional American, this Trump moment feels very painfully dystopian. Yet somehow it is being normalized. And uh, I re- regarding utopia as a student of 20th century history, I'm reminded of my absolute favorite piece of political and cultural graffiti. During the powerful May 1968 worker-student uprising in France, on a brick wall, these words had been spray-painted. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. Sounds nuts at first, but then one realizes that demanding the impossible may be the best way to achieve real change starting now. So much all-pervasive technology today, for example, would have been seen as ridiculously impossible just a few short years ago. And to people living under repressive dictatorships, the idea of democracy may also seem impossible. So they go for it. (laughs) And today we find ourselves with a perverse government demanding that we, the people, serve the rulers working to erase our traditional constitutional rights and let the executive exercise his privilege over all. It's certainly dystopian. So how can one even talk about laying the foundation for a happier and more just future? Our guest today argues that the negative emotions of sadness, anger, and fear evolved in tandem with hierarchy, while happiness evolved separately and in connection to pro-sociality and compassion. Martin Shanehall's new brave book, brave new book, uh, one could say, is titled Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. Thank you for being with us, Martin Shanehall. Thank you, Bert. It's good to be with you. One critic writes that Shanehall's marries his scholarly obligation to critique humanity's ills with his activist's penchant for offering remedies, drawing on research from, ton, from, from some, des, drawing on research from some disparate disciplines as anthropology, biology, history, and psychology, Shane Halls introduces us to a utopia where money is no longer king. Uh, joy is central. Life's necessities are universally guaranteed. Uh, Work is optional. Learning is pleasurable. Hierarchies are minimized. Coercion has no home. Nation states are dismantled. And the media is a means of promoting equality and community instead of feeding the cult of celebrity. 
good description. The word utopia in the book title sure fits. Well, Martin Shainhalls is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University. He has previously taught at Columbia University, John Hopkins University, and the University of Pennsylvania, and is the author of The Paradox of Power from 1993 and Intimate Exclusion from 2003. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Uh, Utopia is poorly understood ridiculed idea in our so pragmatic, rugged, individual-based myth and culture. The notion nevertheless guides your work and finds a prominent place in your book's very title. With such obvious risk of being maligned, why lead with utopia? Um, Well, precisely for reasons that you alluded to in that really nice introduction, Bert. Um, I think that one of the most uh, sad and and disturbing things that we do is that we accept the state of society as it is. We often spend a lot of time critiquing it, which is very important, but we don't spend enough time talking about possible solutions. And I wanted to reclaim the idea of utopia as being a positive word. There really aren't words that we have in English that don't have negative connotations and uh, that represent the idea of imagining a better world and a better world that's possible. And so I want to reclaim that idea of utopia by using the word and the concept of utopia. And one of the things that I want to add here is that a utopia doesn't have to be a kind of sci-fi fantasy, yeah. although those are fun as well. I know lots of people like them. Yes. But um, I use biology and anthropology, which is my field, and other social science fields to show that utopia is very um, pragmatic and possible. And I give some very concrete solutions mm-hmm. and invite uh, readers and listeners to dialogue with me and with each other about those. Well, I'm reminded of a statement by the visionary Martin Luther King Jr. talking about uh, the arc. History arcs towards justice. It's slow, but it arcs towards justice. And this is an interesting cover, if I can describe it. It's two hands uh, painted ocean blue with Mm -hmm. the continents uh, shown you know, like projected onto the hands. Tell us about that that cover. That's very interesting. Um, it It is a striking image. So one of the things that the cover um, suggests is that there's a, a kind of possible combination between globalism and the very intimacy of the hand, since the globe is painted on the hand. And That's one of the things that I think about and talk about um, for my utopia, which is ways that the very small scale um, and local community can be connected to the larger um, global community. I, of course, advocate eradicating borders, um, Hmm. but at the same time, I want a connection between the local and the large scale that is a kind of face-to-face intimate uh, connection the way that the cover suggests that it might be. Uh, eliminating borders. Boy, that's that's really something to think about. There was a wonderful First World War movie 
uh, the grand illusion about borders and how mm. in the First World War, listeners will know I always talk about the First World War, there was, it was an illusion. But people, working people, were killing each other. Truth is, they were brothers. They really were. They, you know, yeah. But it was just this grand illusion of, of borders. Now, right-leaning Americans these days often cite the expectation of and demand for happiness by liberals, like me, as detrimental to a well-functioning society. That the expectation of and demand for happiness is is counter to to what uh, they see. They they think it's bad for society. Your reaction? Yeah, I think uh, I of course agree with with you as um, a fellow liberal and leftist. I think that um, one of the things that conservatives either forget or don't know is that if we look at the long arc of human evolution, and even before that, animal evolution, that happiness most likely evolved in order to reinforce behavior that is um, advantageous not only for ourselves, but also for other animals. Humans are very social species. We have the ability to feel compassion, um, and perhaps uh, we are the only species that can fully feel that. And so we can feel compassion and happiness in ourselves, but also when others are happy. And so the point there is to say that the, the, what liberals usually, uh, what conservatives probably object to, I think, if I can surmise their objection, is that happiness is somehow self-indulgent and that duty or some other word like that is a more important word for describing the way that society should be. And yet happiness evolved in order to encourage us to be pro-social, to be helpful to each other. And therefore, it's the perfect emotion. And besides, it's intuitive. We all want to feel happiness. Why not maximize happiness? And and we've seen the effects when people feel unhappy, when they feel grave injustices are being to, done to them, and they have no power, they get angry. And yes. that's not a good thing for society. It just... <laughs> It's not only not a good thing; it's a, it, it can produce. I mean, you mentioned World War One, and and um, I would argue, as many other scholars do, that the kinds of insecurities that were uh, promulgated by urbanization and the alienation in the workplace and in the living place that occurred in the 20th century led to that insecurity and fundamental unhappiness and unraveling of uh, group bonds led to a yearning for a kind of fake community in the nation-state and nationalism. Uh. And that, in turn, led to the nationalism that led to World War I, World War II, uh-huh. and uh, ultimately the, the Holocaust. And nationalism in general... <clears throat> Not a good thing, in my personal opinion. Exactly. It's, it's time to get over that stuff. Nationalism is really bad. You know, it just it just is. It doesn't help anything. And I think it's a defense. You know, people are frightened. And, and fear is such a motivator. If people don't have things to fear, wow, imagine that. If people have yeah. what they need. Go ahead. Yes, exactly. 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 What you say is really important, and that is that the kind of fear and anxiety 
our uh, primary basis upon which uh, the boundaries of the nation-state are often um, constructed, uh, namely for lots of people, that understandable fear that um, if we have a good job, someone else may come in from outside and take it away. Um, But if we rethink the nature of work so that all of us get the basics of subsistence, that we need. And that's something that is entirely possible in today's world. We produce enough food, we can produce far than more food than we require and long into the future. Um, then we should all have the basics of subsistence. Then we don't have to worry about that kind of fundamental primal fear that someone else might take our standard of living away and we may end up starving. And Therefore, the idea of boundaries becomes much less potent. Just fear. Fear is such a motivator. And it's, it is. When, when, when FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, he knew what he was talking about. It has been manipulated to not serve us well. Fear. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And very interesting, uh, forward-looking uh, book here, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality, Reimagine. We're talking with its author, Martin Shanehals. And it does remind me of some, oh, back in the late 60s, uh, some of us were really optimistic for the 21st century, thinking that uh, uh, new technology could free us, that we would learn the lessons of Vietnam. Don't do that. <laughs> 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 we didn't, though. You know, and, and it's it's... It was a motivating uh, force, that that hope, that possibility. And yeah. it's not like one is real and the other is not real. For example, one thing is clear about Donald Trump and his supporters is that they support tremendous executive power and authoritarian hierarchy crushing any legislative participation in government. You know, uh, an executive ruling Sounds like a dictator. Yeah, well, your research suggests that the arrangement most confounding to human happiness is, in fact, hierarchy. Now, what does your research tell us about whether or not hierarchy is hardwired into who we are? Many people think, yeah, it, it's just some something people need. Your thoughts? So let me address um, two issues about hierarchy. The first, it's connection to the negative emotions, and the second, the issue and the question of whether hierarchy is somehow inevitable because it's hardwired into us. So I wanted to, um, as a leftist, not just assert the importance of egalitarianism, but to actually show what it is and why it's important to our happiness. And so my argument is that Hierarchy, the antithesis, of course, of egalitarianism, evolved among animals um, in conjunction with the negative emotions of sadness and fear and submission. In, in particular, it evolved in what biologists call dominance hierarchies, those hierarchies that we learn about in junior high or high school biology. Um, but the story doesn't end there. With um, the evolution of mammals, and humans, of course, are mammals, one of the things that happened is that we evolved the capacity to nurture, to nurture our offspring, 
and to feel great joy in that nurturing. And so I connect, um, and others have done the same thing, the evolution of joy and happiness to that mammalian desire to nurture offspring. And in humans, that uh, capacity and that desire to nurture became generalized so that we desire not only to nurture our offspring, but to nurture each other. Now, I can easily hear listeners saying, but wait a minute, you know, where's the nurture today? And I fully agree, um, uh, having lived in New York City for so long, that it doesn't seem to be very much in evidence. And so that raises the question, is it possible that we can be nurturing and where is this nurture? And so here's the issue that we need to um, talk about, and this is the second issue that I raised, and that is the hardwiring issue. We are not hardwired to be hierarchical. In fact, if anything, just the contrary. Humans evolved about 200,000 years ago. We evolved in Africa, and from that time, 200,000 years ago, all the way up until the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago, and maybe even later, 6,000 years ago, we had no hierarchy. We lived without warfare. We lived an egalitarian life in small groups. And this is not a fantasy that I'm putting forth here, as my friends sometimes say, oh, I don't believe it. Um, but it's a reality that is uh, proved by uh, scientific research. And we survived because we were egalitarian sharers and compassionate to others in our group and, and even others outside our group. Um, so what that means is that for 95% of humans' history, we have lived that compassionate and sharing life. And it's only at about 6,000 years ago with um, the notion of property that arose with agriculture that people started fighting each other, conquering each other, and enslaving each other, and that leads to the first hierarchy. But hierarchy is an anomaly in the human in the history of humans, and it is a part of our capacity, but e- an even stronger part of our capacity is that for compassion and equality. Boy, one one can see that. Of course, if people are, you know, feel like their backs are against the wall, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to be compassionate. But if there's enough to go around, and let's face it. There is enough to go around. Yeah. You know, that that it it changes everything really. And you know, we we are about consumption these days. I mean, the the gross national product, uh growth, uh, you know, we we want to have more growth. The right sees Americans rightful role as being passive consumers. Just take what we get. Don't have power. Don't be you know, you don't need to be creative. Uh, it's quite at odds with our founder's notion of citizenship, which is not exactly everybody, you know, having everything they need, uh, underscore need, not want. Uh, but the right today and, and the those in power uh, like that we are mere consumers. We're always hungry for what we don't have. This keeps the economy humming. You begin your exploration of utopia with a look at human emotions such as envy and shame. Why? Tell us about that. 
Yes. Well, <clears throat> shame is a really interesting emotion <clears throat> because it most likely evolved um, originally in order to reinforce the kind of pro sociality that humans have, to make us attentive to others' needs, to make us feel the shame and embarrassment that we can and do feel when we're um, too publicly selfish. The problem with shame is that it divides ourselves into a public self and a private self. And we all know that intense, intense feeling of uh, kind of dislocation when we have a big difference between those two selves. And so one of the things that I'm suggesting is a, a ways to rethink how people are socialized to be um, sharing and compassionate, and that rather than shame being that um, emotion, that compassion, an equally strong and equally human emotion, take its place. One of the things I, I also wanted to sure. respond to is y your um, discussion of consumerism, and, yeah. and you're exactly right. The right wing wants us to be passive. They put the emphasis so often on the well-being of consumers so that they can take away the well-being of workers and say, well, we're doing it in order to make consumers more well-off. And that's always really puzzled me because most of us in a consuming society, we're both consumers and we're workers. And yeah. most of us also, um, with the often length lengthening of the workday, we spend a lot more time working than we do consuming. Yeah. And so to my mind, work should have a genuine value in and of itself rather than uh, an instrumental value giving us money to buy things that we consume in the few hours of time off that we have. Um, and so I'm actually proposing a, a very pro-work in, in a robust and different meaning of work, a, a pro-work economy, one in which work is validated and in which work has its own meaning and enjoyment as something important um, rather than something that leads to the earning of money that allows us to buy a few consumer goods and to uh, retire and do retirement things for a few years before we die. Yeah. I find it interesting that, that some people on the, what I call cultural left, talk about, you know, the idea of do what you love. You know, you can do that if you have some degree of economic freedom. If you don't have that economic freedom... It's really hard to do what you love. I think about so many people doing jobs they just hate. And what, do, what does that do for them as individuals, their families, their communities? There's, there's got to be some way to deal with that. And I know that, you know, in the, the, the optimistic, perhaps unrealistic late 60s, we look to uh, various uh, uh, technological improvements uh, in terms of uh, communication, you know, having more than one than three channels on TV that, uh, you know, communication uh, and didn't actually foresee artificial intelligence and robotics. But why? Why? I mean, shouldn't that be able to remove some of the, the drudgery? And, you know, I got to say that uh, in regard to work, political and cultural activists in the late 60s, Abby Hoffman in particular, used to address 
the drudgery of work by envisioning what he jokingly called full unemployment. Now, the, he was, you know, he, he liked to have fun, too, and point, poke fun mm-hmm. at things. The point for many of us in that optimistic era was that work alone d- may not necessarily satisfy. It may prevent a fuller humanness. The dichotomy between work and play is a false one, you believe, and will not exist in utopia. How not? Yes. So those are all really great questions and, and key ones. So first of all, the thing that when I have students try to define work and think about what it is um, that they usually come up with is that work is not enjoyable precisely because it's not freely engaged in, precisely because it's obligatory. There's not always anything inherent in the activity of work itself and the things that we do um, in in many workplaces, um, but it's the fact that we have someone telling us to do it and making us do it. And it's always surprised me that conservatives love to talk about freedom, but they ignore one of the most precious freedoms that we should all celebrate, and that is namely the freedom to engage in creative in creative exploits because we want to do so, not yes. because we have to do so. Amen. I had one student who once said, um, talking about schoolwork, that she loves to read history textbooks, but the minute a professor assigns them, they become work, they become an obligation, and she hates doing it. And I think we can all relate to that. And so the point of saying that is to return to um, the 1960s optimism Um, which is not misplaced, and say that we can be freed from the drudgery of having to work because we feel we have to do that in order to make a living. In reality, the world has more than enough food and other resources to meet all of the needs of the number of people who exist today, and even the um, number of people who the UN estimates um, will live in the future. The world population is expected uh, to crest at perhaps 11 million people in 2050 and then Whoa. level out after that. And um, I show very carefully in the book that we have more than enough food and more than enough food that can be produced with very little labor, very efficiently, mm-hmm. so that I document the reality of the abundance of the world and the abundance of time for, as you cited Abby Hoffman's um, phrase, unemployment for all. Um, And the reason that I do that, of course, is because we have constructed a false notion that we live in a world of scarcity and one in which things are more and more scarce and we have to work harder and harder to make a living, and that's just not true. And, of course, with automation, yeah. that world is coming true. There, there's a prediction that in the coming decade or so with autonomous vehicles, there will be several million people put out of work um, as full-time right. drivers. And to my mind, we can take one of two forks in the road. One would be the despairing one to say, well, gosh, we produce everything efficiently and with all of this automation. Um, but no one has any work, so we're all going to have to live amidst the plenty but have no access to it and starve. 
And that's pointless. The other obvious thing to say is, hey, if we can produce a lot of food and a lot of other things that we need with fewer and fewer people, then maybe work is not the best way to allocate those things to people. Maybe it should be shared equally among all people so that all people have the basics of subsistence. And that will free us up to, as you said, engage in meaningful pursuits. I, too, know so many people who spend so much of their time at workplaces that are really um, horrible locations. And, of course, it's not just limited to those in um, blue-collar work. It's often the, the corporate and office workplace as well. And... So what I want to do is to to take the dividend that we are um, through automation and other sorts of technological processes um, creating, namely time um, for all of us. We're creating that as a kind of dividend and give that time to all of us equally so that we can all then engage in things that we want to do. And To my mind, a good economy is one that provides the conditions for us to engage in creative pursuits and to have those pursuits recognized by audiences. So I'm speaking kind of metaphorically here um, because as a musician I like the, the image of the performance where there are people who are creating and a face-to-face interaction with people who are listening um, and giving us immediate feedback. Um, and when I say creative pursuits, I'm also speaking broadly. That can be anything. That can be many of the things that are done today under the name of work, but are done in such a horrible condition that most of us don't enjoy yeah. it. And most of us don't work very hard, or very effectively at least, if we're made to work in a hierarchical situation. Wow. So so much to think about there. And I think about drudgery every now and then being here on the seacoast of New Hampshire. I drive down on Route 128, also 95, and there is so much traffic. People, I, I just, for people to do that every day, five days a week, year after year after year, just basically sitting in these barely moving parking lots, what, what kind of humanity, you know, is is that the best we can do? I don't think, and, you know, there's a little bit of pollution that comes out of those cars sitting there, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. the, the whole environment thing is, is affected by people doing things that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not so good, maybe it's not so useful anymore. And again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is... Uh, Anthropologic, no, psychological anthropologist, a fascinating, I've never heard those two terms mixed before, but he's the, uh, Martin Shainhalls uh, has a new book titled Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. What, what about, just briefly, what about that uh, psychological anthropology? I, that's fascinating to me. I never thought of such a thing. Yeah, it's, it's a great field because... Um... You know, we're, so many people and so many students, of course, are interested in psychology. And what um, psychological anthropologists do is raise that um, especially fascinating question of what happens in other cultures. Do people yeah. feel the same emotions? 
Um, do they show the same emotions? Do they have the same facial expressions? Uh, well, I, I've I've long felt that as a history buff, that anthropology is a great way to study history. It's a good lens mm-hmm. to look at uh, human change. And capitalism as we have it now is presented as uh, tying reward to effort. While utopians are guaranteed food, shelter, and other basic means to live, whether they work or not. I note some candidates for president, specifically Andrew Yang and others, mm-hmm. are calling for a universal basic income. Uh, of course, this idea uh, would certainly eliminate most crime, but it riles the right rather strongly. Is there a right to food, shelter, and other basic necessities? Is that a right, do you think? Can we absolutely. Af- can it we afford absolutely a right? And it makes no sense um, in a world of plenty to deny it to people. The only reason that the right wing wants deny it to, to deny it to people is because it's a means of controlling people. And of course, uh-huh. America inherited that puritanical traditions from the Puritans, um, who believed that work was a kind of moral virtue but it was an unfun virtue and it was by vir- it, was, it was because it was unfun and unpleasant that it was virtuous so <laughs> that work was a kind of asceticism that's yeah, the that's so the genesis to a certain extent of the opposition between work and play and that artificial division between um work which is seen as uh virtuous but unfun versus play, which is seen as guilt-inducing um, and shameful um, in the Puritan calculus, um, but somehow fun. We don't need to have that artificial um, dichotomy, and the only reason that it really continues is because uh, for those people who are in power, it serves their purposes to have us feel guilty if we don't, yeah. quote-unquote, work, meaning do what they want us to do. Yeah, freedom can be dangerous. You know, people start to think for themselves and be creative, and, whoa, that threatens the uh, power structure rather severely. Yes, it does. And, and, and you argue that with all basic necessities guaranteed, this is out there. Money, as we know it, will cease to exist in utopia. The picture is uniquely hard to imagine. How would that work? Well, um, I've spent, as an anthropologist, as a cultural anthropologist, I study living peoples, a lot of time among people who do things based upon reciprocity, where someone will do a favor for someone else, and um, then that favor is returned at some later time. And um, a lot of activity still to this day occurs in places all around the world. The place where I've done my research is in uh, China. Um, And I'm thinking in particular of this one village where a man built his house with non-monetary labor. His neighbors helped him, and he helped them when they were building their houses. He had a really nice house, and he said to me the following thing. He said, I could not build this house today. Um, I could build it uh, 20 years ago because we weren't infected with the idea that you only do things for money. Um, And he said, I don't have enough money to hire people to build my house, but there's enough labor to do it. And 
So that shows one of the kinds of perversities that monetary economies can introduce into the nature of human relations. Um, we could obviously do a whole show on that topic, but um, the the point is that money and market economies have all kinds of imperfections, and they shouldn't be worshipped as a kind of yeah. god the way that uh, people on the right wing so frequently want to do. Yeah, it's not everything. You know, people who who have made a lot of money, uh, a lot of them come to realize, I mean, there's a, some kind of strange uh, psychology about super rich people just being desperate for more and more and more and never filling that bucket. It's it's very strange. But money doesn't buy happiness. It's real. I mean, a lot of people do realize that. Absolutely. And in fact, what you just said, I think what we need to consider is that among many people, there's a kind of addiction to money, a classic oh, yeah. addiction. Oh. One of the things that's a classic feature of any addictive behavior is that more and more of the substance um, doesn't satisfy us. And right. we keep, uh, or one who is addicted, keeps striving after the substance um, without being satisfied. And they keep doing it um, uh even though it leads to negative consequences for themselves and people all around them. That's a classic addiction, and money and power fit that classic addiction. And one of the things that I showed in my book that I think is really important is that status and hierarchy, they're a kind of compensation for the anxieties that we all feel, but they don't lead to happiness, even for those on the top. And so what that means is that we have to get rid of hierarchy throughout society in order that the whole society can feel um, the joys and the pleasures that come from a return to equality. And the whole idea of, of scarcity, that, you know, I got to have more than everybody else. There's not enough to go around. I got to fight for it. It's antiquated. It's, you know, it, it doesn't fit anymore. And yet we keep uh, moving in that direction. Now, aside from, from money and the economy, one of the uh, things that your book, uh, well, the title is Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. So with regard to learning, America's founders agreed that democracy is only possible, that freedom is only possible, really, with a well-educated populace. For many decades, Republicans have intentionally defunded public education and the goal of Uneducated masses has been reached, and it serves them very well. While you applaud the establishment of universal education for its democratizing potential, you contend it has a number of negative consequences, one of which was that, and I know from having kids myself, if, if, if you're required to read this thing, you're less likely to want to do it. Yeah. Speak to that, if you would, please. The uh, negative consequences of uh, universal education thus far. Yes, exactly. So one of the first negative con consequences is that um, by creating a sphere of schools that we are required to attend, it <clears throat> turns something that humans love to do when we're very young. We love to learn. I mean, that's our we're oh, homo yeah. sapiens, and, and so that's built, that is hardwired into our nature. Mm -hmm. um, and we turn that most fundamental human pleasure into something that's an obligation, and we also turn it into something 
that's demeaned by saying that well, only children go to schools, learning is for children, and once they learn what they need to know, then they go out into the workplace and do the real work and get paid for doing it. And that sets up a false dichotomy between work and learning. We should be learning throughout our lifetime. We should integrate learning with work. They should be intertwined, and there shouldn't be a kind of institutional separation between them. And um, that's the second piece that I wanted to point out about the institution of universal schooling. It came out of a 19th century American notion that children need to be separated from adults and put in their own sphere and taken care of. And that sphere was created in the 19th century for all children as universal schooling. Um, and so I want to break that down in order to break down the sense of obligation and in order to break down the kind of denigration of schooling that comes from making it something only for children and something that only is useful as long as it has a means to something else. It's never made any sense to me why we talk so vociferously about the importance of education, but it's always education for yes. creating an economy that is better than anyone else's economy or creating more consumer goods. But we never talk about the pleasures of learning as an intrinsic um, human desire. And just as we deny to work uh, pleasure through a kind of puritanical, artificial construct of work versus play, we do the same thing with schooling. I think we need to have schooling and learning for all and intertwine learning with the workplace and not separate them. So play, learning, um, and work. Break down those artificial divides. Boy, I can think of so many examples where, where learning in schools has been drudgery and the situation, yeah. you know, the, the, the psychological effects on kids that may not you know, perform best in that rigid structure it, it's not good for them necessarily. And it, it, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's not. And I mean, all of us know that um, while a little bit of anxiety is okay, a lot of anxiety <laughs> drastically reduces our ability to remember. It drastically interferes, oh, yeah. quite literally, neurologically with cognition. And so, all of the testing mania that exists in schools today. Um, I know from having relatives who work in the schools is leading to extreme anxiety and anxiety that is counterproductive to learning. Um, and what it's really doing also is it's socializing young people to fit into a world in which there's hierarchy and uh -huh. punishments and mm -hmm. rewards for activities in which their own pleasures and their own desire to learn or to work are minimized. And that's that's a real, real tragedy. Yeah, it really doesn't need to be that way. I'll tell you, as I've gotten older and kind of rediscovered learning, I'm loving it. It's so much fun. It really is. You know, reading yeah. history books that on my time, what I choose, it's it's fascinating. I think it uh, it's good for everybody if they find something that they like, whatever the heck it is, to be able to do it, and I was really lucky. I grew up in an America in the 50s and 60s with a wide and solid middle class. My father emphasized learning for its own sake. 
Yeah. I was really lucky that way. You say that our schools today are seen as a means to an end and about getting a better job, as we all know. Should students expect expect to enjoy learning? Is that even possible? Not at all. The, the really impossible thing is that we've, or what seems to me unlo- unlikely, and yet it's happened, is that we've turned it into something that's so unpleasurable, that's uh, something that's so unnatural. Learning is something that's natural. And as you said, I mean, people... Once they get older, I've I've often had older students who go back to college um, more for the the sake of wanting to learn, and they're, they're wonderful to teach, and they have a whole different attitude. Um, and the point there is to say that how we view the process um, depends upon the social constructs within within which it's situated. Namely, that if schooling is is required, if we say you know, if you don't learn, then you're being a bad person, then obviously it's going to um, become a chore and a drudgery. But if we take that away, most people will do all kinds of tremendous things um, voluntarily. I mean, we volunteer for organizations. We parent without being paid. We engage in small and sometimes larger acts of kindness without being paid. It happens all the time. But because money is not involved, we minimize the importance of those things, and we shouldn't. We should recognize that human behavior does not need money um, and obligation in order to learn and in order to, quote-unquote, work. And one can think of so many examples of of kids and older people, you know, who are in some uh, institutionalized uh, learning, and it has uh, very tight bounds on it. But the kid is interested in doing other creative things, which are not really, you know, part of the uh, the curriculum, and it doesn't get encouraged. And, you know, I, I happen to think that, that everybody's got something to contribute, and that, you know, if people are turned off from doing what is inside of them, what they can bring out, what the heck's the point of that? It doesn't make sense to me. But then again, a lot doesn't make sense these days. <laughs> well, it doesn't it doesn't make it shouldn't make sense to anyone. And the people it's it it always seems to me that um some of the right wing critics of the left are really tipping their hand when they become so angry that if you suggest people should learn for fun there's there's got to be in their reaction um, something else going on besides a kind of rational argumentation against um, what we are proposing. Um, and, of course, part of it has to do with their fear that the the levers of power will be taken away, yeah. the monetary and other rewards that are dangled between, before students, namely grades, or before workers, namely money, uh-huh. um, the things that are used to control us. And and one thing that seems pretty pervasive throughout uh, the culture as it's been so far is, you know, hierarchy, dominance, and control. And you talk about impossible, you know, demanding the impossible. Today's widespread acceptance of marriage equality was seen as absolutely impossible just a few years ago. Just yeah, but here we are. You promote a new kind of sexuality, one based not on gender distinctions. What does this egalitarian sexuality look like, and what role does it play in utopia? Yes. So um, 
I what I want to say first at the start is that no one will be coerced, of course, into being married or uh, attracted to anyone who they're not attracted to. But I raise the question of whether we can think of attraction as based on something other than gender, because sexuality has a way of um, reifying and reinforcing gender boundaries. So much of yes. um, what goes on is in gender um both for straight and for gay people, and uh, even in bisexuality, I think the very word bisexual is reinforcing a kind of um, two-gender system. And and so I'm raising the question, is it possible to rethink the basis of attraction and to think about people being attracted to other people because they're compassionate? Um, you know, today we have that kind of phrase of the nice guy finishes last and the the person who's nice is the person in the dating market, um, male or female, who's often unwanted. Um, And I argue that a lot of that comes out of the really detrimental nature of sexuality today, namely that people are attracted to the bad boy or the bad girl Mm. because they've been hurt in uh, outside of the sexual realm or in the sexual realm, and there's a kind of um, post-traumatic stress uh, dynamic of wanting to recreate that hurt in order to solve it. I know I'm getting a little bit psychological and complicated here, but that's your background. <laughs> but that's my background, and I think I, I, I. So what I am suggesting is that. Um, we think about a kind of media that redistributes attention, not just uh, so that it redistributes attention from the celebrity. Uh-huh. And so much attention today, it's it's a uh-huh. lot like the, the economy as well. We have a winner-take-all economy in terms of money. We have a, a um, winner-take-all economy in terms of celebrity and attention. Let's give attention to people who are ordinary people. Let's give attention um, uh, to all people, and let's give special attention to people who are compassionate. And by doing that, maybe we can make compassion into this sexy quality that it should be so that compassion becomes sexually desirable. Interesting. I I know of a a local television show where they look at people you would not know about, but look into what they're doing in their lives. And it's fun. People like it. it there's something really attractive to it. They're not celebrities. I just, and, and, and putting celebrity uh, in terms of power, you know, having to be a celebrity to be elected, that's nuts. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's just nuts. But that's partially another story. Now, there have been utopian experiments in human history. It seems that my impression has been that they can only possibly work in small villages. How large can utopia be and still retain its egalitarian qualities? Can it be in big cities? Yes, it it can, um, if the nature of those cities is, is changed. And so what, uh, going back to your, I, I'm, like your fascination with the cover of my book, the kind of hands with the world on them, we can combine the intimacy of the local with the um, real 
desirable nature of the the global. And the way that I suggest doing that is much of what we will do, we'll do in small groups, um, so small work groups. Um, and without the... Um, the nature of work today makes it very competitive that there are individual rewards, so it's hard to work in groups. But without that kind of hierarchy, we most likely will be able to work um, in much more robust and meaningful kinds of groups. Learning will take place the same way. But then those groups I want to encourage to link up with other groups, um, both near and far, so that we create connections with other kinds of people, with people um, abroad. Everyone loves to do that. I mean, as an anthropologist, that's my profession, is listening to the stories of average people um, from far away. But I know how compelling it can be, not only for me, but for anyone to whom I tell those stories. And um, so creating those kinds of face-to-face contacts um, is really important, and making the larger political entities like the city, like the state, like the, you know, the, the global world, making them um, based more robustly on connections between people. Mm-hmm. Um, today, the, the nation state, it's an artificial, yes. an artificial created entity that in which so often we have virtually no contact with most of the people who we will fight to the death um, for because we call them quote unquote Americans. And yet we don't know most of them. We have are alienated from so many other people. And, and that's part of what makes the nation state so toxic. It's a kind of created an artificial entity. And I want to have those local connections generalized um, uh, so that people are connected from the local level through face-to-face contacts with people at a greater distance. We could talk about a lot of things in this book. I didn't want to leave out the question of justice. And good old Plato, uh, in describing his republic, I don't think he ever resolved the question of justice. Our judicial system today operates with a winner and a loser. But Utopia's courts, by focusing on equality, fundamentally change outcomes, making two winners both possible and likely. Uh, That needs an explanation. Yes, it does. Um, Today, so much of what happens in courts, of course, uh, we have a winner and a loser because there's money and money involved, and the conflicts that uh, courts are solving are over um, money and monetary loss and monetary gain. But in Utopia, with an absence of money and an emphasis on uh, equality, you can redistribute attention to someone who's been neglected without necessarily taking it away from someone else. Attention is a quality. We all know that we can um, increase our attention to other people um, without necessarily losing attention to other things. And so it's really important that courts become a paradigm for non-zero-sum thinking so that we don't think about uh, a conflict as having a winner and a loser. Um, And I know that sounds kind of Pollyannish and, and, um, I don't know, idealistic, 
But it isn't, and it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, we could, if, if someone feels neglected, I imagine them taking a, a case to court and saying, I feel neglected, I'm not getting enough attention. And the court can um, either reassure them that, in fact, they're getting more attention than they realize, or the court can do things to increase the attention in the media and in their everyday lives that's given to them without taking away anything from someone else. And as we know, by the way, right, the, that lack of attention, that lack of affirmation is so painful and so hurtful, and it's what engenders so much of the toxic behavior that's happened in recent centuries in human life. By addressing that, we really address the foundational cause of hierarchy. And I'll tell you, just personally, in the late 60s, I was so optimistic for what the 21st century would look like. Ha, huh, we are far from that. And Einstein said something like, uh, with the creation of the nuclear bomb, that with that, everything has changed except human thinking and our understanding. And it sounds like, you know, what we're talking about here, the reality is that here in the 21st century, things really have changed, and we're not caught up with the possibilities. A fascinating book, very optimistic, and regular listeners know I like to be optimistic. The book is called yeah. Work, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality, Reimagined, and the publisher is Routledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. Fascinating discussion. It's good to feel a little bit of hope that uh, there's a picture there that we can look at and think, hey, maybe this is possible. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. And thanks for having me, Bert. All right.